Do you all agree that he's more than wonderful? Isn't that a great song? So thank you, choir, if you can hear me. Lord bless you. You may recall that uh, the last time I was here, I gave you an introductory message from the book of Proverbs. And we noted that the answer to the question, where does wisdom begin? The answer was that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And as I read the newspapers this week and listened to the newscasts, I noted that our government is uh, looking for some wise men. I wonder where they're looking. But they're looking for wise people. There seems to be a dearth of understanding among the so-called intelligentsia of our world. Now, that's a big two-bit word, isn't it? But that's what we're looking for, is people who are wise. I define the fear of the Lord as taking God with the greatest possible sense of respect or seriousness. Because there is no one that is greater than God. He is more than amazing. He is more than wonderful. And the fear of the Lord is the great priority of life. We must all take God with the utmost seriousness. All other pursuits in life are limited. They are inadequate. They are flawed in some way. And we noted in verse 7 an additional thing. That the fear of the Lord is the beginning. The beginning. And the word beginning means first in rank and first in importance. There are no rivals for the number one spot. And this tells me that the fear of the Lord is the top priority of all of life if one wants to live a life of wisdom. The alternative to the fear of the Lord is to deny the all-importance of God, to pay no attention to Him, and thus have the Scripture call us a fool. The fool has said in his heart, no God. The rest of the book of Proverbs tells us how the fear of the Lord is to be worked out practically in our lives. And I would like for you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Proverbs again, chapter 1, and we'll read verses 7 to 19. I've entitled uh, this message, The Fear of the Lord, A Case Study. So if you like to study, we'll have a little study this morning. Beginning at verse 7, Proverbs chapter 1. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and fools despise wisdom and instruction. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Indeed, they are a graceful wreath to your head and ornaments about your neck. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us lie and wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without cause. 
Let us swallow them alive like Sheol, even whole as those who go down to the pit. We shall find all kinds of precious wealth. We shall fill our homes with spoil. Throw in your lot with us. We shall all have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Keep your feet from their path. For their feet run to evil and they hasten to shed blood. Indeed, it is useless to spread the net in the eyes of any bird. But they lie in wait for their own blood. They ambush their own lives. So are the ways of everyone who gains by violence. It takes away the life of its possessors. May God bless His Word to us. Shall we pray for just a moment? Our Father, we bow before Your Word. We bow before You. And Father, we pray that You would grant us this morning to hear Your voice speaking to us, speaking to our innermost being. Lord, we would be wise. And Lord, You've already told us in other places in Your Scriptures that if any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God, because He gives to all men liberally and doesn't find fault. And so, Father, we give you thanks in the name of Jesus for this wonderful book. And we pray your grace to rest upon each of us here this morning. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I have on my bookshelf a book entitled The Problem of Choice. The Problem of Choice. It's an introduction to ethics by William Henry Roberts. And the problem of choice, and I'm going to leave out a great deal, but to put it as simply as I can is that we live in a world in which we cannot have all we want, nor can we do everything we may want to do. We have to make some choices. Sometimes we have to let go of some satisfaction if we want to enjoy something else. At almost every step, we are confronted with the absolute need of choice. It's time for me to replace my 10-year-old computer. And I've got to make some choices. And uh, do I get a laptop or do I get uh, a desktop? Uh, and I, I've been struggling with that choice. And I've asked a number of people, what should I do? And some have said, well, we'll get the laptop. You know, it's, uh, you can carry it with you. And no, the other says, oh, no, 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 get the uh, desktop. Uh, it's uh, much easier to handle. Much easier. So I've got to make a choice. Choices in life. And our passage for today is one of those passages that presents a young person the choice of listening to his parents or teacher or listening to the temptation of the society in which he lives. And our society presents a lot of stuff, throws a lot of things at us. And our parents and or our teachers, our spiritual advisors, they have given us a number of things. And so we need to make a choice, a choice in life. And every choice we make commits us to consequences. 
Sometimes we may not even be aware of those consequences. A quick decision in a sudden crisis saves the driver of a car or it may cause a terrible accident. And in our passage for today, we see consequences for this young person. One is for his good and the other is very painful and may even be deadly. I'd like to divide our passage for today as we begin this little study. I told you it's a case study. And I'd like to divide the passage into three parts. First of all, I want us to see the setting. And the setting is tremendously important here. I'd like for us to look closely at this young man who is confronted with some very, very important choices. And secondly, I would like for us to see the issue of choice. What does he have to choose from? What are his options in the choices that he is going to make here? I want us to see the kind of people that come into our lives and seek to influence us to make the choice they are putting out. And lastly, I want us to see the results or consequences of the choices in this particular passage. The setting of the passage. I want you to notice the transition of thought from verse 7. Look at your Bibles. I want you to notice the transition of thought from verse 7 to verse 8. Verse 7 speaks of the fear of the Lord being the beginning of knowledge. And verse 8 speaks to us of a parent's instruction and teaching. One of the greatest helps in the spiritual formation of young people are godly parents. Godly parents are those who have begun the path of wisdom by first of all fearing God themselves and putting God in the first place in their lives. The parents by walking the path of wisdom and once again this means believing God that's the path of wisdom It's to walk that path. And what he has said in his word. By walking this path, parents are equipped to instruct and teach. Can parents do it better than what they are doing? Of course. Most godly parents I know want the very best for their children and want to make the very best possible choices. I want you to notice again from your text. That parents give advice or instruction and they teach. They teach what? The word teach is the Hebrew word Torah. And what does this all mean? It means that there is a biblical basis for their teaching. It is not kitchen wisdom. It's not street smarts. It is based solidly on what God has said. And just to make sure that we're on the same page, the word Torah refers to the law of God or the first five books of the Bible. So here are parents steeped in these first five books of the Bible and they are teaching this to their children. For us, this would suggests that we are to teach the entire Word of God. 
Secondly, please look closely with me at the young man in our passage. Those of you who are quite familiar with the book of Proverbs will remember that there are at least 20 passages which begin with the words, My son. In the setting of the Proverbs, the word son can be applied to a student, to a pupil. And the pupil's teacher was expected to be as committed to one of his students as if it were his own flesh and blood son. And I would like to say that while daughters are not mentioned specifically, they certainly should be included, especially in today's culture, which is quite different than the culture of the day when the Proverbs were written. I particularly took this to heart as I had the privilege of teaching the Proverbs for some 12 years in Culver City at the Bible School. And each one of my students, I kept thinking, I'm to treat them as my own children. Treat them as my own children. And as I stand here this morning, I'd like to think of you as my fellow students, as my fellow learners. And so I trust this morning will be uh, applicable to all of us in a very real and special sense of the word. As you may remember from the last time I was here, one of the groups to whom the Proverbs were written were the naive and the young. These are the people that are very impressionable, easily influenced. Some think of the naive as the person with the blank page, where you can write almost anything you want on the page, and that person receives it and accepts it. The Proverbs are addressed to the vulnerable. So it's not surprising that many Proverbs are specially addressed to the student so that he might have as verse 4 says, prudence, knowledge, and discretion. That is the goal of the teaching. Prudence, knowledge, and discretion. For those of you who teach young people, I urge you to take great interest in them. Teach them about God. Teach them about the Lord Jesus and what He has said. So here you have this very impressionable, vulnerable young man about to go into society, a society that is full of temptation, a society that appears exciting, a society that is violent, and what is he to do? The son is told in verse 8 to not forsake his mother's teaching. And the Hebrew word forsake means to scatter. If a mother were to leave a list of things to do, to forsake that list would be to take that list, tear it up in pieces, and scatter it out throughout the house and throughout the yard so that it would be hard to access once again. It's taking the teaching and coming up with all kinds of excuses for not obeying. You know, like, my parents are old fogies. All my friends are doing it. I don't want to be left out. It's old-fashioned, and you know, we're in the 21st century. Did you know that, Dad? 
You know that, Mom? 21st century. Get with it. So the young man scatters the teaching by tearing it up with his excuses. Now, let's look at the issue of choice before this young man. Who are the people who are trying to influence this young person? Verse 10 calls his influencers sinners. Now, there's a great person to take your advice from, isn't it? This is a very interesting word that is used here. The concept of sin embraces the whole gamut of human failure. A sinner is a person who constantly misses the mark. A sinner is a loser. A sinner has a lifestyle that has no guidelines for the root, at the root of behavior. He has no teaching or has rejected it. How would you like to be the one to have a loser have a big say in how your life is to be lived? Well, why would anyone listen to such a person in the first place? It seems like it would be easy to say to this person, you're a loser, I'm not going to listen to you. It seems like it would be easy. A key verse is in verse 10. A key word is in verse 10. It's the word entice. You know what another word for entice is? Temptation. And the New Testament puts it this way. The wiles of the devil. The wiles, the sneaky, subtle innuendos. And he just worms. They worm their way in. And before we know it, we're hooked. Well, what are the temptations in our passage? I want us to notice at least three temptations. You may find more, but I want you to notice at least three temptations in our passage. And these are very common with most temptations. First of all, is the promise of excitement and power. Notice verses 11 and 12. The young person wants to escape Dullville. Uh, my wife and I live in a town that some of our young people call Boraga. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's boring. And I'm so glad it's boring. You know, I'd rather it be boring. I don't care for the excitement of the siren of the police car or the ambulance. I'd rather not hear it. I'd rather be boring in that respect. So this person wants to get out and out of Boraga. He wants to get out of Dullville. And he imagines himself now as really living it up. And he is now someone to be reckoned with. You know, don't mess with me, buddy. Notice how violent these two verses are. The last line of verse 11 is particularly awful. Let us ambush the innocent without cause. Some of the worst crimes imaginable have been done against the most innocent of society. And who are they? Little children. Yes, little children. 
And we read too often of young children missing. They've just disappeared. That's temptation number one. Is the temptation of excitement and power. A second temptation is the offer of quick of a quick way to gain money. Verse 13. And notice what it says. We shall find all kinds of precious wealth. We shall fill our houses with loot. The allure of lots of money and the appeal to greed represents a very powerful temptation. Get-rich schemes are often behind the most perverted schemes in our society. And can you imagine someone getting away with $65 billion? He made off with it. Happens to be his name. What is behind sellers of pornography? It's sin, lust, and money. What is behind prostitution? Sin, lust, and money. What is behind the drug trade? It's greed and money. Money, money. That's the second temptation this young man has to face. And he's going to have to make a choice somewhere here. A third temptation is the pull of the gang. Notice verse 14. And this temptation may be the most powerful of all. It plays on the person's need to belong. He wants to belong to a group of other young people. He wants to belong. He has a need to be accepted. Togetherness. For a person's desire to be part of something. And Notice the language of verse 14. Throw in your lot with us. Come on. We want, we want you to be like us. We want you to be with us. Then it goes on. We shall have one purse. You know, it's share and share alike. We'll all be one together. One big happy group of gangsters. I'm sure that you have noticed that not once have they stated the negative consequences of life lived with greed and lust and violence. And that's the way it is with sin's allure. The devil puts a really enticing lie forward, but never shows the hurtful, painful consequences of that kind of life. Well, let's move on to our last point and notice the consequences or results of the choices that are before this young man. And the choices are very clear. We have the devil's temptation. Come with us. Let us lie in wait for blood. Come with us. Let us lie in wait for blood. And then we have the advice of the parents. Don't consent or don't go. Now, here's a very clear choice. Come with us. Don't go. 
Come with us. Don't go. What to do? Beginning in verse 15, the wise father now speaks to his son. And in a very graphic, hypothetical situation, tells his son clearly what will be the outcome of a wrong path, a wrong choice. And I'd like to say, listen carefully here. Notice with me the text as we compare Scripture with Scripture. And I want you to notice two very telling couplets. That is, we are going to link one verse with another verse. Verse 11. Let's lie in wait for blood. Now notice verse 18, and I want to couple these two together. These men lie in wait for their own blood. Notice that? Another couplet. Verse 11. Let us ambush the innocent without cause. Verse 18. They ambush their own lives. Someone said that sin is its own executioner. And I believe that to be very largely true. Sin, as these passages suggest, comes back to haunt the sinner. Sin, as its own executioner, doesn't let us away. Get us, let us get away with the sin. We are going to face the consequences. The New Testament puts it this way: Whatsoever a man sows. That shall he also reap. He who lives by the sword shall die by the sword. And the gravest consequence of all is in verse 19. The person who gains by violence will find that his very life has been lost. The New Testament puts it this way. What shall it profit a man? What shall it profit a man? If he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? And the answer is pretty obvious. There is no profit. I can hear someone say, well, I would never do that. Never do that. And uh, there's a very beautiful little proverb in verse 17. It is useless to spread the net in the eyes of any bird. I'd like for you to think about that one. It's so very, very wonderful. What the writer is saying is that a bird, because it has little sense, will fall into a trap, even though he sees the trap being set. Not very much sense there. Not very much understanding. Not very much prudence. The naive has not learned if they go that path. Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. Indeed, they are a graceful wreath to your head and ornaments about your neck. Did you notice that? Well, what does that mean? Many people today wear special ornaments 
as, and I saw some here today, as earrings, jewelry, gold chains around their necks. And they are intended to enhance the general appearance of a person. The hat or the necklace are intended to convey some kind of status that is recognized by the community, like the gold medal placed around the neck of the Olympic winner. Wouldn't you like to wear God's gold medal? Wouldn't that be neat? And the gold medal has inscribed on its circumference, well done, good and faithful servant. Wouldn't that be neat? Everyone here standing up before God. God calling out your name and awarded you the wreath and the medal. Instead of the young man holding his head high, his, his head down after he has been caught, this young person now can hold his head up. And further, verse 9 teaches us that godly moral qualities are the best kind of adornment that a human being can ever wear. Godly moral qualities are the best kind of ornament that a human being can wear. It may be natural to want to look nice, but the emphasis here is look nice with a beautiful and obedient spirit. And one who humbles himself now and obeys will in due course be lifted up. And the New Testament puts it this way, take care of the adornment of the inner self the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is of great worth in God's sight. It's time to close. We have looked very briefly at a young individual who lives in a violent and insecure society and who is faced with choices that have far-reaching consequences. And I want, in closing, to recap some of the factors presented in our passage that may help in making a wiser choice. Wise choices are helped by trustworthy people whom we know and who are interested in our good. And I'd suggest the elders here at San Ramon are interested in the welfare, and your pastor, Adel, uh, they're all interested in your welfare and your good. And we have some godly parents here who are interested in the welfare and the good of their children. People who are knowledgeable in the Scripture and, and who have a devotion to God and who can tell us what the Bible says are of help in the making of choices in this world. People who can be very directive and who can tell us, don't consent, don't walk with the losers of life, don't go there. They can be helpful to us in the making of choices in life. People who may be able to identify certain influences as sinful, influences that come from the losers of life, 
We want to listen to that kind of person. People who can tell us from the Scripture that the spiritual life is worthwhile and that it adds a graceful wreath or a crown of righteousness to my head. And lastly, I'd I'd like to say a couple of words to those who have not yet said yes to Jesus. Who have not come to Jesus as 1 Corinthians chapter 1 speaks of him as Christ, the wisdom of God and the power of God. The wisdom of God. But the choice. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 3. You don't need to turn to it. How shall we escape if we, know, if we neglect so great salvation? And here's a choice. We can accept the salvation that God offers or we can forget it, neglect it, not pay any attention to it. Say, it's not for me. It's one of the greatest choices of all of life. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Those two words are perhaps the most significant words in the New Testament. Come to me. It's not come to church. It's not come to this ethical teaching. It's come to a person. And you know who that person is? It's Jesus. Come to Jesus is what this is saying. Come to me. Not come to an ideal. Not come to a philosophy. Come to me, a person. Yes, we can come to a philosophy. But there are consequences. We can come to an ideology. And we have a lot of ideology in our country today. That doesn't seem to be very helpful. But Jesus says, come to me. Come to a person. Come to a person. Is there someone here this morning that would like to make that choice? Today may be the uh, greatest opportunity of your lifetime to make a choice for God. I trust that this today will be that day of making the choice that really counts. So let's pray together, shall we? Lord, if there is someone here this morning that uh, needs to make that choice, we pray for that individual. And we pray, Father, as we speak to each other now before you, pray that the person will unashamedly say, Yes, Lord, today I want to make the choice for you. And, Father, we do pray for each person here today as we consider life and the various choices that 
life entails. We pray, Lord, that uh, you would help us to be wise. To listen to the, the scriptures. To listen to your word. To listen to your servants. Thank you, Father, for bringing us together today. We pray that you would dismiss us now with your blessing. Because we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.